stand up for our scripture reading for today and we will be in the book of 1st Timothy chapter 6 starting in verse 11 but thou O man of God flee these things and follow after righteousness godliness faith love patience meekness fight the good fight of faith lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentiate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Sister Angela, you're here. I don't know if you weren't here earlier, were you? Did you? Okay, okay. Can you come on up here then? Because we gave out our certificates. Angela is a great student of our institute. She really studies hard and puts a lot into it. Thank you, Angela. God bless you. Give her a hand because I know it was hard for you. She went down to Costa Rica in the middle of the semester too to be with her parents. So God bless you, Angela. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before I begin the message too, I just want to say one word about um, a well-known pastor in New York City passed away this week, and he's had an effect upon a number of people in our church, and that's Dr. Tim Keller. And I just ask us to pray for our brothers and sisters of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I'm not a Presbyterian, but you know what? There's very fine Christian people, I'm sure, in that church. And some of you were in that church before coming here to Heritage. And some of our people still have connection to a Redeemer and They're no doubt grieving, but yet rejoicing as um, their pastor uh, who founded that church. And actually, I mentioned how I went, uh, Young Soon, who started Heritage with us. She was going to Calvary and going to Redeemer before joining with us at Heritage. And I actually went to Redeemer one time just because I had heard of it. This was back in 1996. Um, I had heard of I had heard of it and wanted to, to go there. And I did. Uh, one Sunday before starting Heritage. And, I, and then I thought, wow, Dr. Keller, he was only 72 years old. That's like eight years older than me. He always seemed older to me than that. I was like, I'm not that far behind him, so hopefully I'll, I'll live a little longer, but we'll see. You never know. God is sovereign. But, but be in prayer for his wife, Kathy. And uh, it was precious. I heard, I, or I, I read on social media that he died with his wife at home. That's a good way to go. You know, and and surely uh, Redeemer today, as they meet together in their services like this, their their hearts are are really thinking about the passing of a man they loved. And so we should be sensitive to that and pray for them and pray for Mrs. Keller, pray for his family today. So let's take our Bibles and turn to first Timothy, chapter number six, as we continue our series in Timothy. I'm going to finish Timothy next week. And I'm going to start a series on the parables of Jesus Christ, which I'm excited about. And let's just... Here today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you could turn that down just a little as well. Verse 11, thank you. Let's read it together. 1 Timothy 6.11, God's Word. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Let's pray. 
Now, Lord, please take this time and glorify your name through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Michael Statler was a man of God, and his wife, Margaretha, was a woman of God. So ladies, don't tune out on a message entitled, O Man of God. This godly couple, they were believers of great peace, yet they were condemned and died for their faith on this very day. Some say May 20th, but May 21st, others say, back in the year 1527. And this is what the sentence against Michael Statler read. Michael Statler shall be committed to the executioner, who shall first cut out his tongue, and then chain him to the wagon, and there with glowing iron tongs twice tear pieces from his body. And then on the way to the site of the execution, five more times as above, in other words, glowing tongs, tearing pieces of his flesh from his body, shall occur, and then burn his body to powder as an arch-heretic. On the way to the execution, it was done, just as it was written. Yet, at the site of the execution, Michael Statler was unflappable. With mangled tongue and mangled body, he prayed for his executioners. He was bound to a ladder. And then that ladder was lowered into the fire. And as it consumed him, he prayed, Almighty God, Thou art the way and the truth. I will with Thy help this day testify to the truth and seal it with My blood. As he burned, the ropes on his wrist were broken. And he promised the Swiss brethren, this happened in Switzerland, that he would give a sign that a martyr's death was bearable and that he was remaining steadfast to the end. So when the fire severed the cords which bound his hands, he lifted up his hands and spoke his final words, Father, I commend my spirit into thy hands. His wife, Margaretha, was drowned a few days later. They drowned many of these early Anabaptists to mock their rebaptism. And no doubt that they drowned him indicates that these Anabaptists did practice immersion, my understanding. One king of that era, one Roman Catholic king, even called it a third baptism. He said that the third baptism, drowning these believers, was the antidote to rid the world of these Anabaptists. And believe me, they worked hard to do it. Many of these early Anabaptist leaders were put quickly to death. So what had Thomas Statler done to merit such a terrible death? He was despised by the Roman Catholic Church as well as by the growing Protestant Reformation movement led by Ulrich Zwingli, which would become the Presbyterian Church. And frankly, as I read church history, this is why I can never be a Presbyterian. But Statler was pastoring a church in a small town called Orb. He went there for peace. He was a man of peace. He was a man of real, noble conviction of the Bible. And while he was there, along with other Anabaptist leaders a document was drafted called the Schleitheim Confession. And you can Google this online, by the way. There's some interesting things you could find. The Schleitheim Confession basically stated that baptism was for believers only. He denied the sacrament of the Eucharist. In other words, he denied that the very real presence of Jesus Christ was present in the bread and the wine. He denied infant baptism and that it brought any type of salvation or regeneration. He rejected the worship of Mary and the saints. He would not appeal to them as intercessors. He did not believe that Christians should bear the sword to spread or defend the faith. And frankly, as well, dear friends, I'm a Baptist by conviction because of men like Michael Statler. People might call us Protestants. I say no. I'm not a Protestant because these Protestant leaders 
put men like Michael Statler even to their own death, some of them. You see, as well, and I'll just say this, Ulrich Zwingli, he started the Swiss Ref- Reformation, right? And which led to the Presbyterian Church. Zwingli died with a sword in his hand, fighting against the Catholics. The, the Swiss reformers, uh, led by Zwingli, believed they needed the power of the state to bring about the Reformation that they desired. But men like Michael Statler, he broke with Zwingli, basically saying, you don't go far enough. You want to reform aspects of the Catholic Church, but we need to go all the way back to the Bible and trust God. And that's what he did. Statler said this, we who believe are the saints. Those who die in faith, we consider blessed. I believe that. He held to salvation by grace through faith. And he believed that the faith that saves is the faith that produces works of righteousness. I believe that. They died for their faith is what a stone outside of Rottenburg, Germany states. Michael Statler was a man of God. His wife, Margaretha was a woman of God. So today I want to speak to you about, O man of God. I did a bit of a study on this phrase, man of God, in the Bible. I found, I thought, some interesting things, so I thought I would give you a quiz. Are you ready for a little quiz this morning? So I'm going to give you a little quiz. The first question is, and it's in your notes, but I have it up on the screen. Who is called a man of God more times than any other man in the Bible? Who do you think is called a man of God more times than any other single man in the Bible? Should I give you a, a multiple choice? Okay, multiple choice. I'll say, I'll give you Elijah, Moses, Elisha, or David. Elijah, wrong. Moses, wrong. David, wrong. Only one left. Okay, it was Elisha. Okay, the next question. Now, this, now you've got to stick with this question. In different books of the Bible, who is called a man of God more than anyone else in different books of the Bible? In other words, I'll, and I'll give you the books. This person I'm thinking of, called a man of God, he's called a man of God in Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, and Psalms more than any other man in the Bible. Who is that? Moses? That's a possibility. Let me give you the multiple choice. Joshua, Abraham, David, or Moses? Joshua is wrong. Abraham is wrong. Moses is right. You should have stuck with your right answer. You were right. Okay. Moses, that, that's right. Moses is... Oh, I didn't put the question up there. Sorry about that. Uh, and he's called... I thought that was interesting. He's called a man of God in five different books of the Bible. Okay, so here's, here's the question. This next question, I can't put it up because I see I have the answer on the next slide. So I, I'm messing everything up here. The, the next question is, how many unnamed prophets are called man of God? Sometimes the man of God is used... But there's no name given. So, unknown name. It's kind of a very obscure... By the way, I, I wouldn't ex- expect you to get all these questions right. But I'll give you a multiple choice. How many unnamed prophets are there in the Bible? One, two, three, or four? One is wrong. Two is wrong. Three is wrong. Four, okay. Four is right. Now, here's, here is, to me, a very interesting question. Is Jesus called a man of God in the Bible? If so, what book, and I'll give you extra credit if you know the chapter. So, is Jesus called a man of God in the Bible? How many say yes? How many say no? Okay. The answer is yes. He is called a man of God, but it's a bit tricky. Do you know what book he's called a man of God in? Not Hebrews. Not John. Ezekiel, you're getting close. We'll be here guessing all day. It's Judges. It was the angel of the Lord that came to Manoah, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And they called Him the man of God. Now, there's only one man specifically called man of God in the, in the New Testament. And guess what his name is? 
we just read him. Timothy. The term man of God is only used twice in the New Testament. Speaking here of Timothy, and then the last time it's used, it is speaking of anyone, women including being a woman of God, whose lives are being shaped and equipped and super equipped by the Word of God. Second Timothy, what does it say? This is the last time this phrase is used in the Bible, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly perfected, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So all of us can be men or women of God. So let's talk about a man of God for just a few moments this morning from this passage of Scripture. More than anything else, a man of God is one who belongs to God. He's of God. He stands for God. He represents God. He speaks the Word of God because the Word of God is in their heart. And they're living by the Word of God. A man of God is one who belongs to God. And there's four things I want us to see from this passage of Scripture about a man of God this morning. The first thing is that a man of God is in continuous motion. He's in continuous motion. What's the motion of a man of God? What does it say in verse number 11? It says, Thou, O man of God, what does it say then? Flee. And then he says these things. Flee the love of money. Flee the false doctrines that are so promoted in the church. Flee these things. He just talked about the love of money and the false teachings. And then he says what? Follow. Follow after righteousness. And then he says, what's the first word of verse 12? Fight. So these are the three words of constant motion of a man or a woman of God. Flee, follow, and fight. Are you fleeing evil? Are you following righteousness? Are you fighting for the Lord? That's constant. These are three commands given in the present tense, which means we're to do it continually. That's why I say a man of God is in continuous motion. And there's aggressiveness in this action. This is aggressive in action. Now, a man of God is not obnoxious, but he's on the move. We're not just reacting, but we're taking initiative. We're working. We're fleeing evil because if we don't flee evil, it will catch us. And we're following righteousness because if we don't follow righteousness, it will elude us. Continuous motion. Aggressive. Fleeing. Following. Now notice what he says to follow. There's six things. You know, the Bible's so amazing. We could actually take a whole sermon and preach six, sermon, six sermons on just those six things, which we won't. But he says, follow righteousness. That's moral uprightness that other people can see in your life. You see, you say, and we say, yes, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, which we will talk about tonight on the radio in Romans chapter 4. Because we are saved and we have the righteousness of Christ given to us and God has taken our sins away and now looks at us as, as forgiven and with the righteousness of Jesus, that faith that saves is the faith that lives righteously. Godliness is reverence toward God. That's our conduct. And then our virtues, our faith, he says in this verse, faith. Faith is that dependence on God and His Word. Faith is a trust in God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know that verse. Depending on the unseen things of God's Word. In other words, faith is a sure confidence in the things we don't yet see or haven't seen. I mean, have you ever seen Moses? Do you believe he lived? That's faith. Do you believe Jesus rose again from the dead? We didn't see him. We weren't there when he did. But he did. And we believe. That's faith. So things in the past. But things right now. Where's Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of God. Have you seen him there? Have you gone to heaven to see him seated there? No, but we believe. The Bible says it. That's faith. And we believe Jesus is coming again. We haven't seen him come again yet. We've never seen what that would be like. But we believe. The Bible teaches that. We believe he's coming again. This passage even tells us so. So faith is, is that 
confidence and that dependence upon the unseen realities of God's Word written, past, present, and even future. Faith, love, is sacrificial service without receiving anything in return. Patience, abiding under a difficult situation. We've looked at that word in Timothy about meno. Remember, abiding under is literally the word of patience. And meekness is what we must have in a world that is hostile to us. Do you realize that? Michael Statler and his wife, there was a strength, there was a meekness about them. And that meekness is that gentleness. And the pastoral epistles speak of that in 2 Timothy 2, in verse number 25, it actually uses that word, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. And so, A man of God is in continuous motion, aggressive in action, but agonizing as well. Agonizing. And I say that word agonize because of the the words in verse 12 where he says, fight. And we get our word agonize from that original language word. The original language is agonizomai, agonizing. And then he says, the good fight, which is agon. So one is a verb, one is a noun. He's saying, agonize with agony. The good fight. We're in a fight. We're in a battle. And this is a spiritual contest. These these were athletic terms in Paul's day. And those who win athletic contests struggle and agonize toward the finish line with discipline. Athletes struggle with discipline to win the race. And that's what he's saying we ought to have. As believers, we agonize the good agony of the faith of Jesus Christ. The doctrines that we hold dear. So that's the first thing. A man of God is in continuous motion with aggressive and agonizing action. Secondly, the man of God is called to eternal life. So these three verbs that I've mentioned already where he says flee, follow, and fight... And, and I do like to look at the language of these words because the Word of God was written so precise. They're present tense words. In other words, we continue to do these things. We flee, we follow, we fight continuously. And that, as we said, was that continuous action of the man of God. But now look what he says in verse 12. There's another command. But he says, lay hold on eternal life. And this is the idea once and for all. Get a hold of eternal life. Don't let it go. Grasp it and know this gift is yours. Make it your own. Have no doubt that Jesus Christ is yours because eternal life is where? Not in your works, but in Jesus Christ and His work. So the idea of lay hold is lay hold on Christ. Never forget Him as your gift. And this gift of eternal life is infinitely greater than any prize anyone, anywhere, at any time can win on this earth. No athlete, no actor, no rich man, no popular person, no famous person would have a greater gift or prize than you, child of God, if you have eternal life. We are called to eternal life. Do you know you have eternal life? Are you sure you have eternal life? This, this passage says you can lay hold on it. You must. You are commanded. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called. Jesus calls us. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are here today and you are not sure you have the gift of eternal life, Jesus calls you. To Himself. Trust Me. Trust My love for you. That He died on the cross for your sins. He died the death we deserve. He rose again for you, dear friend. And now He's seated at the Father's right hand. And His arms are extended with nail prints in His hands. Come unto Me and I will give you rest. Seeing then that we have this great High Priest, Jesus Christ that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Lay hold on eternal life. When I thought of that, and I thought of the different prizes and awards of this world, I thought of the Stanley Cup, one of the most famous trophies in all of sports. 
And when a hockey player wins that Stanley Cup, they, they always take it. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they take it and they lift it up and they, they skate around and some will kiss it. I mean, it's, it's like a bit of idolatry there, you know. But they work so hard to win the championship and they're so exuberant in joy. And they grasp that thing and they will not let it go once they win it. But I say to you, eternal life is a million times infinitely more great than a Stanley Cup. And yet this world puts so much on these earthly prizes. Eternal life is so much greater. This word, lay hold, lay hold on eternal life. You know where it's used in the Bible? It's used multiple times, but my favorite place where it's used is when Peter was sinking in the water. Remember when he was walking on the water? And then he put his eyes on the winds and the waves and he began to sink. You know the story. And what does the Bible say? It says Jesus stretched forth his hand and what? Caught him. He laid hold on Peter. Do you think he dropped him? Oh, he didn't drop Peter. He held on to Peter. And so, when we're saved, in a sense, that's a beautiful picture. He captures us. He captures us. And because He lays hold on us, when you were sinking in that water, you and I are that Peter. Yes, we are. We wanted to come to Jesus, but then we started putting our eyes on all these things all around us. And, and we, we got mesmerized by the winds and the waves. And then we begin to fear. And we didn't make it to Jesus as we thought. But oh, we wanted to come to Jesus. And He sees that heart. And He reaches out. And He catches us. Let Jesus seize you today. He will lay hold on you. And when He does, you lay hold on Him. And don't ever let Him go. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to eternal life. Lay hold, He says, on eternal life. So the man of God, the man of God is in constant motion. The man of God is called to salvation and eternal life. And thirdly, the man of God must then continue in obedience. Verses 13 and 14. And notice these verses, and I think they're not so familiar to us, so let me read them again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 13 and 14. Again, Paul says to Timothy, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickens all things, that is, gives life, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I'm taking this point, continue in obedience, I'm taking that especially to verse 14 as the heart of these two verses where he says that thou keep this commandment, that we continue in obedience to the commandments of God. And there's a lot of conversation about what commandment Paul has given Timothy here, but I believe it's just the commandment that kind of follows through the whole book. And if you even go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says right at the very beginning, at verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1, can you go back there, where Paul says, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. So that was his first commandment really, stay there in Ephesus. And when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine. That's his commandment. You don't teach any other doctrine but the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Great is the mystery of godliness. And the heart of the, right in the middle of this book is that great doctrinal statement about Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Who is that? Jesus Christ is God, manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Preach Jesus! That's His commandment. And teach no other doctrines, because there are false doctrines all around, Timothy. And there still are false doctrines all around us. 
And if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he comes now toward the end of the book, he says in verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, if any man teach otherwise, if they teach another doctrine, in other words, if they teach another doctrine other than the doctrine that I'm telling you of Jesus Christ, he says, and they consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. And then Paul goes on to describe how bad that is to do. So that's the commandment, I believe. And then as you even get to the end of the book, go to verse 20, where he, Paul says to, to Timothy, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding all the profane and vain babblings. Man, that relates to us, doesn't it? A lot of profane, vain babblings in our world. Things haven't changed. The world is still the world. Don't get upset that, that oh no, everything's cap- The world is the world. But we're in Christ. We're standing on solid ground. When the whole world seems like it's shaken and shattering, we're on solid ground, Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling Timothy, continue in this obedience, in this commandment of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And now I want you to see why we should continue in obedience based on this passage. There's two main reasons Paul Paul gives. First of all is we live in the sight of God. Paul says, I give you this charge in the sight of God. Paul is charging Timothy in the sight of God of God the Father who gives life to all. Because we live in the very presence of God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, then teach no other doctrine but Christ. You're in the presence of Jesus Christ. We're in the presence of Jesus Christ. We're in the presence of God right now. Oh God, glorify Your name. Help us to love You, Jesus Christ. You are the head of this church. May You be glorified in this place. May we be a light of Your love in this great city that we're in. David said, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is on my right hand and I shall not be moved. That's how we live the Christian life. In the presence of God who gives life to all. And Paul is reminding Timothy of that. And then he says, We live not only in the presence of God who gives life to all, but we live in the presence of Jesus Christ who gave a good confession for us before Pontius Pilate. That's very interesting that Pilate's name would come into a pastoral epistle, isn't it? But here it is. And again, people say, well, what kind of a confession? What does Paul mean? When he's, Paul's saying, I charge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, who quickens. God raises the dead. <laughs> Hallelujah. Aren't you glad He raises the dead? But then he says, I charge you in the sight of Christ Jesus who died but is alive. He's been raised from the dead. And then he says, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Now, what exactly is that good confession? There's different, again, different ideas. And I don't think any of them are necessarily wrong. Some say, you know, it was when he confessed before Pilate that he was a king. Remember, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this World. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. What a good confession. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Jesus told Pilate, He's the king of an eternal kingdom. Maybe the confession before Pilate was just His peaceful presence before Pilate. Remember, Jesus often never even answered a word to Pilate. And Pilate marveled at His peace at his silence. Maybe that was his good confession. Or maybe Paul is saying that Jesus persevered during the time of Pontius Pilate. And before Pilate, Jesus remained true to His mission. He didn't say anything that would just kind of soften the situation so He could get off the hook. 
Jesus wasn't looking to defend Himself so that He could be set free from the judgment the world wanted to bring upon Him. He was faithful to His mission to die for our sins and rise again. Fulfilled during the rule of Pontius Pilate. And He endured and He gave a good confession before Pilate. And now, this connects back up, and I skipped over it in verse number 12, where Paul told Timothy, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou hast been called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So Timothy had given a profession as well before witnesses. Probably at his salvation or his baptism. That's talking about. In other words, and we do this when people get baptized. We like them to share a testimony of their faith. And if you were baptized at Heritage Baptist Church, you did give a testimony. And I want to encourage you, remember that testimony that you gave. Remember your profession of faith that you shared before other men and women. And hold on to that profession. And now continue in obedience because Jesus Christ has made a confession to die on the cross for you. How can we let go of Him who confessed He's a King of kings, and yet He's going to go to a cross to be our Savior. He made a good confession. Continue in obedience because we live before God who gives life and Jesus Christ who gave this good confession and then continue in obedience because Jesus is coming again. And that's what Paul says now in verse 14. So, to me, this is so beautiful. If you break down this passage, <coughs> excuse me, Paul is saying, continue in obedience. Keep this commandment without spot. And I believe there are two main reasons we can get from this passage. One, because we live in the presence of God. Think of it. Doesn't that make sense? Continue in obedience because you live your life before God. You cannot escape Him. You cannot escape His all-seeing eye. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Do good. Hold on to Christ. Continue in that obedience. Because we live in the very presence of Jesus Christ who made that good confession for us. How can we go back on ours? Continue in obedience before God because only He raises the dead. You have no hope of life if you go back from, from God the Father who quickens all things. And then, continue in obedience because Jesus Christ is coming again. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word appearing is used multiple times of Christ's coming, both His first coming and His second coming. Are you sure He came once? 2 Timothy chapter 1, go to the next book right there, maybe the next page over. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's so interesting, this word is actually used in relationship to the first appearing. It says, but now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He appeared. Are you sure He appeared the first time? It says He's appearing again. Are you sure of that? Just, are you just as sure of that? Amen. Amen. Just as sure as I know Jesus came once, He's coming again. And because of that, I want to continue in obedience because, again, there is an imminency to this Word where it says that the appearing of Jesus Christ. And I do believe that the coming of Jesus Christ for His church can be at any moment in the twinkling of an eye. We need to be ready for Him to come. And lastly... O man of God, O woman of God, be faithful to the Lord. Be a woman of God, dear ladies. Be a man of God. We need men and women. And by the way, you know, it does say man, and I realize that, but I, I want to include you ladies in that. But a man is a man. And a man, we need men to be men of God. They're trying to destroy... Now, I don't understand what, what is the fetish of our culture, but they're trying to destroy manhood. And when you destroy manhood, you destroy womanhood. By the way, you know, there was a, a 
basketball player, she, he plays in the WNBA. His name is Brittany Griner. And, you know, he was taken into custody in Russia. He was in jail for a while because of drugs or whatever. I, and I thought, you know what this man is doing in the WNBA? He's taking a woman's job. He's, he's playing in a position where a woman should actually be in that place doing that job. This is terrible what's happening in our culture. But let's be men. Let's be women. Let's stand on the Word of God. The man of God is in constant motion, fleeing, following, and fighting, is called to salvation, has laid hold of eternal life, continues in obedience, and lastly, is consumed with God's greatness. This concluding section is an amazing doxology. How many of you ever heard that term, doxology? You know what doxology means? Doxa is the, the word glory. It's the Greek word, glory. And so doxology is a word of the, to the glory of God. A word of praise to God. A doxology is a word of glory and praise to God. And Paul tells Timothy, the man of God, to focus on the greatness and the glory of God. And this statement about God is directly aimed at the emperor worship of Timothy's day. Don't get trapped. Don't get caught up in the emperor worship of the culture. But worship God. And he uses at least eight great attributes of God in this passage. And let me, let me flat out say, beloved, be loyal to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Be loyal to the Word of God. Don't be loyal to man, ultimately. Don't be loyal to a church denominational label. Don't be loyal to a political party. Don't even ultimately be loyal to a, a human government. Because everything in this world is going to crumble. Every human government is going to crumble. The United States of America, we should be as best citizens as possible, but our ultimate loyalty is to the Kingdom of God. And our ultimate loyalty is, and I love our Constitution, but our ultimate loyalty is to the Word of God. And our ultimate loyalty, I love a Baptist church. I love, as I study church history, I thank God I'm a Baptist. I do. But my ultimate loyalty is not to the name Baptist. It's to the Word of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. Look how Paul, look what Paul says of God here. And just quickly, God is the sovereign master of the seasons in verse number 15, which in, in his times, he shall show in his times. God is the so sovereign master of time. His time is the right time. And he is sovereign over all time. It says, who in his times, emphasizing he's the sovereign master of the seasons. And notice what it says. It says, he's the blessed God. You know what that word blessed? It means happy. Next time you're depressed, just look at God when he's happy. Let the happiness of God put a smile on your face. God is happy. This is the same word Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And those words blessed means happy. This name is used for God. He's the blessed God. And he, His reign is invincible and universal. It says He's the King of kings. He's the only potentate. That's a big word. That means He has all authority. He's the only one with all authority. He's the King of kings, it even says here, and the Lord of lords. This is speaking, I believe, of God the Father. And think of this. Many have tried throughout time to be King of kings. And that term is even used for earthly kings. You know what's used in the Bible? King of kings is used for earthly kings. You can look it up in three different places I've found. But no human king has ever really been a king of all kings. They may have tried. They may have seen themselves as a king of kings. But there's only one king of kings, and it's our great God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. His reign is invincible and universal. And then it says He, he is immortal. That means He's deathless. He's eternal. He's beyond time. And He's deathless. And then it says 
He, he dwells in the light to where no man can approach. He lives and dwells in unapproachable light. Do you remember when God was there on Mount Sinai and there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud and ascending smoke and the mountain was quaking and the trumpet was blaring and there was devouring fire on top of that mountain and the people of God couldn't go near? That's only us. That's only the backside of His glory. God is an inappropriate... It says He dwells in the light to which no man can approach. That's, that's amazing. And I find it so, you know what's even more amazing? That when we get our glorified bodies, I believe we're going to be able to look at God. Because it says in Revelation that Jesus Christ, is He the light of heaven? He lights up heaven. There's, is there a sun in heaven? No. Who's the light of heaven? Jesus Christ. He's the light of heaven. That's, that's in Revelation 21. The very next chapter says, we will see His face we'll be able to look on the face of the One who's lighting up heaven. And He is therefore worthy. It says, He is worthy of honor to whom be honor and all power. And then Paul says, Amen. So I close with this story. I want to tell you another story about another great Anabaptist. I'm, I'm already preparing for my institute class. And it is so inspiring. One of the early Anabaptists was Felix Manns. He was baptized as a believer, and I think we should celebrate this day, on January 25th, 1525. It will be the 500th year anniversary of the first baptisms of this small group of Anabaptists who were baptized even though the laws were moving against them and they knew when they got baptized that they could be put to death for it. For it. And certainly those early Anabaptists died within two years of this moment when they were baptized. So Felix Mance was baptized January 25th, 1525. He would become the first Anabaptist martyr who would die at the hands of the Protestants led by Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland. And all those Wingley, you see, had promised to bring about reform according to the Bible. Zwingli studied with Felix Mance and with others named Conrad Grable and George Blaurock and some of these other early Anabaptists. If you haven't studied that history, you should look into it. It's so inspiring to see what these men stood upon, the Word of God. But then Zwingli turned against them because they believed they had to separate from the state. The Baptists believed they did not need the power of government to live for God. Mance was convinced that the Bible had to be obeyed. So with noble sincerity and with eloquence, he followed Christ. You see, he seized and laid hold on eternal life. And the greatness of God consumed him. This is what he said, My heart rejoices in God who gives me much knowledge and wisdom that I may escape the eternal, never-ending death. He was talking about hell. Therefore, I praise Thee, O Lord Christ from heaven, that You do turn away my sorrow and sadness, and You have sent me a Savior who has called me into His eternal kingdom. Mance was arrested a number of times, and each time he was released, he kept preaching Christ and baptizing those who believed. He was in constant motion from the time of his baptism to the day of his death. He was called to eternal life. He continued in obedience. He was consumed with the greatness of God. On January 5th, 1527, at the age of 28 years old. 28 years old. Less than two years after his baptism, he was bound in a chain. He was put into a boat on the Limat River. As the boat went along the riverbank, people stood and witnessed his impending death, and he praised God and he shared Christ with them. He declared believer's baptism was the true baptism according to the Word of God and the teachings of Christ. His, his brother and mother's voice could be heard above the people entreating him, remain faithful to God! As they took him to his death with hands bound, 
His hands were bound in chains. They put his hands over his knees on that boat. They put, they put a heavy pole in between his knees and they pushed him down into that river. Remember what I told you about the third baptism by drowning was the antidote to get rid of these Anabaptists. Many of them were drowned. And as he went into the waters, he said, as Jesus said on the cross, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. And I would rather be Felix Mance, and I would rather be Thomas Statler than to be a king of this world, but to have the king of kings and to be a man or to be a woman of God. Let's stand together as we pray. Let's just bow in the Lord's presence. And we're going to sing as we close today, Oh, how He loves you and me. Oh, man, oh, woman of God, love Jesus Christ. Love Him who loves you with an everlasting love. Love Him who caught you while you were sinking. Love Him who apprehended you and He'll never let you go. And you lay hold on Him and know when you have Jesus, you have eternal life in Him. Lord, please glorify Your name. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And who would say, Pastor Matt, my desire is to be a man of God. A woman of God. That's my desire. Can I just see your hand? Just put it up and commit yourself once again, afresh and anew. Say, yes, Lord, here am I. Use me, Lord, to be in constant motion for you. Make that your prayer. Help me to flee the things that are dangerous to my soul. Help me to follow you, Christ. Help me to fight. And then say, thank you, Lord, you've called me to salvation. I've laid hold on you, Lord. I'll never let you go. Because you have me in your hand. Help me to continue in that obedience, Lord. Loving you and following you. Because I live in your presence. And you're coming soon. Yes, Lord. And consume me with your greatness. You're a great God, a happy God, King of kings, my Lord. And I thank You that I could serve You. Thank You, Lord. Can I, you can put your hands down. Thank You so much. Praise God, dear church. How many would say, Pastor Matt, I'm not a Christian, but I want to be and I need to be today. I need to call on the Lord today to save me. Can I see your hand? Is there anyone who'd say, pray, pray for me, Pastor Matt? Can I see your hand? Is there anyone who needs Jesus? You need Jesus. Are you sure He's yours? If not, let us show you Jesus today and lead you to Him. So, Father, thank You for Your love. Please use our church to see souls saved. In Your name we pray. Amen.